0: Our text today is a continuation of Acts chapter 6. As we walk through this Impact World series, uh, we're looking at the beginnings of the church, the birth of the church in Acts 2 as the Holy Spirit came on uh, the believers and the development as it spreads an immediate growth to more than 5,000 believers in the first couple of chapters and and then we saw in the beginning of chapter six that uh, through this growth through the increase of the church some problems began to arise and it required some administrative adjustment but it required the delegation of work through spiritual wisdom and practical wisdom today We're going to be picking up the story of Stephen, one of the seven men named what would later be called deacons, uh, as one of the administrators of this physical needs-based ministry. Before I begin with the text in Acts 6-8, I want to draw your attention to the description of Stephen in Acts 6-5, just a few verses ahead, after saying that the proposal for this delegation Uh, pleased the whole group. Luke writes that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the men that they chose were of similar character. Now picking up with verse 8, we see the story of Stephen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses. And against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem <clears throat> excuse me at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people And oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them them over to the worship of the sun moon and stars this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness people of israel you've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god rephon the idols you made to worship therefore i will send you into exile beyond babylon our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. The land, uh, when they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor. And asked that he might provide a dwelling dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? you stiff-necked people your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised you are just like your ancestors you always resist the holy spirit was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit then he fell on his knees and cried out lord do not hold this sin against them when he had said this he fell asleep and saul approved of their killing him let's pray father your word is heavy sometimes As we look at this story, and we see this man full of grace and power, who embodies the Christian ethic, the Christian ideal, we see also the first martyr of the church. Lord, help us today to see what your spirit reveals to us in the text. Father, keep me from trying to be glib or to entertain. Protect all who hear from mine or any other human opinion. Help us, by the illumination of Your Spirit, to rightly understand Your Word, to rightly apply it to our lives that we might rightly reflect the reality of Christ in our everyday living, in every relationship You give to us, whether good or bad. I pray this in the name of the One who took the brunt of Your wrath in our place. the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Well, as we... um, have read here Stephen while having all of the the faith and the Holy Spirit that made him a desirable choice as a deacon of the church while demonstrating the grace and power of God through signs and wonders among the people we see this and and it seems like this should be a, a celebration it starts out as an exciting story But it ends in what seems to be tragedy. And yet, I would not want us to miss out on the reality that it's not tragedy for Stephen. He doesn't view it that way. In fact, he seems to actually be filled with joy, even at the point of death. He's so consumed with the reality of who Jesus is, with the gospel of Christ being made manifest in his life as he reflects that reality, that all of this persecution doesn't phase him. If you think for a minute Stephen didn't know what was coming, then you're not paying attention to what we've been reading. All who have been following Christ know that they are following the righteous one of Israel, the Messiah. God in flesh. And yet Jesus, having come to His own, was not received by His people. Instead, as He spoke truth, as He promoted righteousness and goodness and peace, and He called people to love and to repent from their sins, to turn from their way to God's way, that they might find God's mercy and be made His children and part of His kingdom, they raised false witnesses against Christ. They opposed Him. And when they could not beat His wisdom, when they couldn't trap Him with trick questions, they finally decided they had to eliminate Him. So they brought false charges against Him. And they convinced false witnesses to testify. And they charged Jesus with blasphemy. And they crucified Him. If you think Stephen didn't know that's what was going on, then you've just joined us and haven't read the rest of the story. Stephen knew full well what was happening. When when he began to preach among the people, and preaching wasn't his primary job. His primary job was to distribute food to the widows. Nonetheless, he was so filled with the Holy Spirit of God He was so consumed with trusting God to be God that he couldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. So as he's sharing the love and the good news that God loves us so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. As he did this, he confirmed this gospel through signs and wonders. But these Hellenistic Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen, there's not a a lot of clear understanding of what that is, but they're coming from areas outside of Jerusalem, from North Africa in uh, Cyrene and Alexandria, from Cilicia and Asia over in the the Asia Minor, what is now Turkey in that area. In these Roman and Greek uh, places, these Hellenistic Jews... Not the same as we saw in the beginning of the chapter. Those were converted Jews who came from a Hellenistic Jewish background, a a Grecian, Greek-speaking Jewish background. These are still in Judaism proper. But they come against Stephen and they argue with him. Stephen, as you can tell from the way he responds here, isn't even fazed by it. He just speaks the truth of God's word under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and all of their argumentation, all of their human wisdom can't refute it. When they can't refute it, they drag him away with false accusations to the Sanhedrin. You've got to know right at this moment, Stephen's like, all right, I can see where this is going. I will speak truth. I will speak only truth and I will trust God with the direction it goes. Our core reality today is that God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. It's a little longer than I usually like for a core reality sentence, but I really didn't think I could condense it anymore without losing some of the point of the text. As we see, the main idea of what Luke is conveying in this story of Stephen, what happens in Stephen's life. The core reality that we need to see here is that God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. That's exactly what we see happening in this story. As we walk through it, Stephen is displaying the grace, the power, the wisdom of God, and he's opposed. And when he is opposed, he only gets stronger as the Holy Spirit guides him into speaking the truth that he knows from previous study of the Scriptures. Everything that that Stephen says comes from the Scriptures. He's connecting the dots through the Old Testament, and we don't have time to really work through this in detail today, though I would love to, because it's so much fun. But if you read what Stephen says, about every fourth or fifth sentence sounds like he could be talking about Jesus, like he could be talking about Messiah. Messiah. All through the Old Testament, we see this foreshadowing of what will come in the righteous one. Before we ever even get to the specific prophecies about Christ, we see His glory revealed in glimpses throughout Israel's history. So He takes what He knows from the Scripture, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, He speaks this to them. It's interesting that He continues to connect Himself to it. There's no separation. It's our father Abraham, our ancestors, our forefathers. And he continues to show this common bond between them in the law of God, in the Old Testament Scriptures. Until he comes to the place where he finally confronts them with their sin. Now every gospel presentation worth its salt must at some point confront us with our sin. We have to see the truth of God laid out. We have to understand that He has sent His righteous one to take our sins that we might become His children that the one who knew no sin 2 Corinthians 5.21 became sin for us so that We could become the righteousness of God. But at some point in every gospel presentation, we must be confronted with the reality that we are, in fact, sinners, separated from God. And we must choose, we must choose to receive Him. He's offering us life, he's offering us freedom and salvation, and we must respond. There must be a confrontation. When Stephen does that here, he's no longer making the offer that he's making in the gentleness and power among the people as he does signs and wonders. This is more of a condemnation. Much like Jesus did with the religious leaders, he was very gentle with unbelievers, He was very gentle with pagan Gentiles who would turn from their wickedness to Him. He was very patient, but to those who received the law, who were teachers of others, His patience was greatly shortened. Because they should know. They are purporting to tell the truth. And yet, they're rejecting the truth that's right in front of them. That's the stiff necked attitude that we have. Before I continue, I just need to pause and say this is the issue that we face every day. It's not that we need some magical understanding of the scriptures that we can't get, it's so hard to understand. God gave us the scriptures to reveal Himself that He might be understood. Yes, some things are difficult to understand. But the vast majority is clear. As Alistair Begg loves to say, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. We see what is clear and we stand on that. And the rest that God makes less clear is a secondary issue, even a tertiary, a third level issue. When we focus on keeping the main thing the main thing, then the issue is much less about what we don't understand about the Scriptures than it is about obeying what we do understand. This is the problem that we face all the time. You and I. You and I as believers, we have the Word. We study the Word so that we know the Word. The problem becomes, will we live the Word? Will we receive it? and surrender ourselves, submit ourselves to God's authority through His Word. That's what Stephen does. He lives his life submitted to God's Word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, he lives with grace and power, and it's demonstrated in this scene. You know, this is the only scene we get of Stephen. Stephen is a prominent uh, person in, in church history. We see, you know, he grew up in Sunday school. You learned about Stephen being stoned. We talk about that story. But this is it. He gets a chapter and a half of the Scripture. And he is so focused on Christ. He so values the reality of who God is. This isn't some religious concept he's trying to figure out how he can adhere to. Not some sincere uh, suicide bomber kind of thing. This is a guy who is so caught up in the reality of what he's got here that he knows that no matter what it costs him in this life, he has an eternity with the Father. God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. Stephen reflects the reality of Christ, even as they're throwing stones. Knowing it's coming, He stands with power. As it's happening, as the stones are in the air, even striking His head and body, before He loses consciousness, He displays a Christ-like grace that cannot come any other way than the Spirit of God moving in our hearts. Let's take a look at some points to ponder. As we look at this story, each of these different points comes out through the story, and I think each of them has a pretty easy and clear application to us today. First off, we see that the gospel always brings opposition. The gospel always brings opposition. As we look at the beginning of this story in 6 verse 8 we see that Stephen is doing amazing works among the people confirming the authority of his message in the same way as Christ what's it say? Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. As he does this, he he performs these signs among the people that are confirming the authority of His message. It's the same pattern that Jesus followed. It's the same pattern that the twelve used. These signs and wonders confirmed that they were from God, but they were preaching the kingdom gospel, a gospel of repentance, of God's mercy shown to us in Christ. And then we see as it continues in verse 9, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Jesus told us that we would be persecuted. Turn, you keep Acts 6 marked, we'll be coming back to this. But turn back to the book of John. If you're in Acts, I'm just going to turn the page a little bit. If you go to Luke, you went a little too far. We're going to look at John chapter 15. One of the frustrating things of having to preach to an online audience is I don't get to hear your pages turning. So I hope if you're watching that you are also turning pages. If you're on an electronic device, I couldn't hear it anyway. But But notice in, in John chapter 15, Starting with verse 18, Jesus says this to His disciples. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The gospel always brings opposition. If the world hates Christ, and Jesus says that as given, history backs it up, it's not religion that the world hates. There's lots of religious people, there are a lot of religions. Some are respected, even endorsed by governments. Religion isn't the problem, it's Jesus. I've been watching uh, a very um, family-friendly, God-honoring show on television recently, and um, I won't name it because it'll feel like I'm accusing it. I like the show. But there are lots of references to Scripture and lots of references to God, but it's a conspicuous absence of the name Jesus Christ. Occasionally, Christ will come up in a hymn or a song, But the name of Jesus is offensive to a world-based audience, to a mainstream audience. The fellows from Duck Dynasty have made a reputation on their Christian values. And people loved their show, except for when they actually prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. They were encouraged, pressured by the network, to remove that. Go ahead and pray. Don't say Jesus when you pray. They refused. Sorry. We pray in the name of Jesus. That's what we do. Take it or leave it. The world is offended by the gospel because the world is offended by the Christ of the gospel. If we are Christ's followers, then Jesus says the world hates us as well. If you think that that is not true, then you are rejecting the words of Christ, not my words, His. The gospel itself always brings opposition. He continues actually in John fifteen twenty. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. It's a powerful reality to recognize that persecution is the lot of the Christian. The gospel always brings opposition. Cultural Christianity is the opposite of opposition. It is conforming to a comfortable Christianized version of acceptable religion. The gospel, however, is ontologically, at its essence, countercultural. Jesus says, Die to yourself. It's an upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, where the strong are made weak and the weak are made strong. It's not a political revolution, it's not socialism or communism or any other kind of ism. But it sure ain't capitalism either. The reality of all of this is that the gospel says all of your world systems are rooted in the world. They're human centered. The gospel, to be the gospel, must always be Christ centered. And if the world hated him, it will hate any gospel that is Christ centered.